Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is sponsored by Six Car Pub and Brewery. Now there are a ton of things I love about Amarillo's largest brewery. The food and the beer are both amazing, the atmosphere is super cool, but beyond that, Six Car is already a community leader. They're planning fun events. They're in the middle of the creativity happening downtown. They're a big part of the growth that our city's seeing. Uh, so I enthusiastically recommend them. Follow them on Instagram at Six Car Pub. Today's guest is Savannah Gates. And usually I can describe a guest in just a quick sentence. But Savannah is pretty unique. Uh, she's got a background in engineering. She's a super creative and professional mixologist. She's a restaurant consultant, she's an entrepreneur, and now she's a farmer. She's doing something truly different on an outdoor and indoor agricultural space west of the city. So in this episode, we talk about all that stuff, especially about the connection between local restaurants and local farmers and local ingredients. So if you're interested in food, drink, people, farming, ecology, sustainability, or, well, ostriches and llamas, then you're going to enjoy this episode. Here's Savannah Gates. Savannah Gates, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for Thank, being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, I want to talk about all the different things that you're involved with uh, okay. and, and sort of the unique place that you've ended up in yeah. your career. But before we get to that point, um, I'd like to establish how you ended up in this area in the first place. So what brought sure. you here? So um, I was actually brought here as a baby. Uh, my dad's job brought us here, and we stayed. What did he do? He works for Texas Tech Medical Okay. Yeah. Business administrator for the uh, family medicine. So he uh, picked up a job back when I was like between one and two. Mm-hmm. And we moved on over and lived in Amarillo proper for like a year. And then found a house with some land out in Bushland um, when I was between two and three. And then we've been out there ever since. Was he from this area or from someplace else? No, he was a military brat, so bounced around, but home is Las Cruces, New Mexico, okay. which is where I was born too. So you you got here as a baby, and mm-hmm. have you been here ever since then, or did you ever step away for a while? Just college. Um, went down the road to Lubbock. Um, wanted to stay close enough to be near uh, my sister. She's just a little bit younger than me and was finishing up high school, so... Picked a good engineering school that I would be able to be in the band or play sports or whatever it was I wanted to do and um, got in and out of school as fast as I could. Wasn't a fan of college at all, um, but played a little rugby while I was down there and tended bar and that was probably the first of my food and beverage aside from working at the good old Hawk Stop in Bushland, cooking the little pizzas and the wings. Yeah. Did you go to school in Bushland too? I did. Yeah. I was part of the first graduating class out there back when it was tiny. Tell me about living in Bushland. It's really close to Amarillo, almost considered part of Amarillo, but you're still far enough away to feel like you're out, Mm -hmm. you know, in the the country. Um, what was it like? Did you feel like you lived, did you feel a part of Amarillo or did you feel like you lived sort of outside that? Uh, I think it was probably happy medium. We had everything we wanted in Amarillo, but uh, as a kid growing up, you're definitely isolated, which provokes a lot more creativity. Mm-hmm. So just my sister and I growing up out on the farm in the summers, it's the two of us in our imagination, as long as we stay out of trouble. Um, we had the garden to play with. We had lots of animals to play with, plenty of manual labor. Did your parents actually farm? I mean, did they 
Hobby farm. Hobby farm, yeah. yeah so like, like they raised crops or small gardens. Yeah. Or, mm-hmm. And then we, we did enough livestock. So we did um, like cattle, just a couple, mm-hmm. um, enough to feed us. So part of that is cost effectiveness because we had the land. Um, and so we'd raise, raise a couple cows and then um, enough to fill our freezer. And then we'd sell the other one and that would pay for a lot of our cow. And so cost effectiveness. And then um, my mom and dad are both medical field and so pretty health conscious. They were pretty knowledgeable of all the hormones and everything mm-hmm. else that was already happening in the food industry. And so we would raise our own eggs. And that actually started just to control grasshoppers on our grapevines. And it kind of blew up from there once we started learning more about the egg production. And, the, and to control the grasshoppers, that was just you had chickens to... Ducks. Yeah, yeah okay. we started with a little pink swimming pool and a dozen little yellow fluffy ducklings. And we ate those first duck eggs and saw like what a difference that was. And my mom started researching about it and how much richer they were, the nutrition in them. And once you've tasted that difference, you can't really go hmm. back. And then they dabbled in ostriches okay. when Mad Cow hit. The market for ostrich boomed. You would think of that as poultry, but it's actually really similar to beef. I've never had ostrich. It. Um, they had it for a special at Copper Fire recently, so you might look out for that because I know they've got a bit left that they're going to be promoting. But yeah, it's super lean. Um, it's really a clean meat, a great alternative to beef. Um, really mild flavor. It's not gamey at all. Okay. So they got into that. And so I was about probably four or five when they got ostriches. And so I was the little one that was sent in to grab the egg, okay. retrieve the egg and, and run, run away. As fast as you yes. Go. Hence rugby. <laughs> I blame my mom every right. day for that one. Yeah. Started with ostriches. Yes. So you went uh-huh. to tech for an engineering degree. Yes. Uh, you did a little bit of work during that process in mm-hmm. hospitality industry. I did. And it, um, the irony is that I actually got into engineering because of playing in the garden. Hmm. So I was out um, messing with the water, making sure that the water was getting to all the crops. And I was probably 12, something like that. And my mom was watching me. Uh, rig these pipes and make sure that all the lanes were clear and everything else. And she was like, you know, you'd make a great engineer, which I didn't know. You know, to me, that was a trained engineer at the time. And she kind of explained what it was. Well, they're good at math and science and problem solving. And that was definitely my strengths and it stuck. So went off to engineering school and then got into the bar industry, which is pretty popular for college kids to put their put themselves through uh, college and feed themselves. Um, so yeah, I dabbled in that, made a great friend along the way, Stefan Stryker. We've talked about him before. Mm-hmm. So he's a physics professor, but wine historian. Right. And At Texas Tech. Yes. And so we became great friends and he introduced me to a whole new world of food that I'd never experienced. Um, he's Swiss, so French training okay. in the kitchen. Very classic, um, but also outside of the box. He's a huge fan of habaneros. So okay. everything's a little spicy. Um, so yeah, I learned a lot from him about the food and beverage and fine wine and aging wine and growing your own peppers and what you can do with that and how you can um, demand a higher level of food and that it's not so unattainable. It doesn't have to be at a really expensive restaurant. You can do it yourself. So yeah, he exposed me to a lot of new things, morels and all kinds of wild mushrooms, which are now my favorite food because of him. Um, yeah. But you you still just dabbled in that, right? You yeah. you graduated from tech and got an engineering job, right? right. I sure did. Yeah. So I had a contract with Pantex as a junior. So at that time, the economy was kind of up and down. Um, so I went ahead and took it just to make sure I had a job, just for job security. Came home, 
Um, started working at Pantex and stayed there for about three and a half years. What kind of work was that? Can you, can you uh, explain? Nuclear weapons. So my, and that's about all you can say? Well, I can say uh, <laughs> my specialty was process engineering. So looking at the process of um, how things fit together, how to streamline them, efficiency, looking at that from a business perspective as well, how many hours you're spending. Yeah, it's hard to talk okay. about that one. Uh, people understand that. Sure. You can't always yeah. share everything that you do at Pantex. Sure. But let's talk about the process of moving out of the engineering industry sort of back to a lot of the things that you'd done as a kid, sure. combining that with what you'd been learning and getting into at tech. So tell okay. me about that career change and, and how your focus began to shift. So I was definitely unfulfilled at Pantex. There's kind of a learning curve. And once you've tackled that, it kind of plateaus for a lot of people. So I started researching a lot about sustainability, wind energy and solar energy, water efficiency and conservation was reading and researching and watching a lot of YouTube and educating myself on a lot of that. And I sat down for coffee with um, Mary Emini okay. and wanted to pick her brain on a couple things. Previous guest on this podcast. I believe it. And so sat down with her at Roasters and um, this was the first like official one-on-one um, chat we'd ever had. And so she heard what I had to say and then gave me a homework list to go research. And so I did. And one of those things was a uh, blue economy. Okay. And that is something that was born in the early nineties. The United Nations saw that there was going to be a great problem for food supply and fresh water supply internationally and wanted to start looking at um, creative ways of solving some of those problems, especially with the population growth being exponential. Um, and just basics, uh, like the foundation of life and having improving that state of life across the board. And so a, a physicist, there's a lot of physicists, I guess, huh? um, named Gunter Pauli took that and ran with it and Blue Economy was born. And so I found that they were having a summer school to go over all of the philosophy. Okay. And um, so that was hosted in Hungary. And so I attended that about... Two thirds of the way through my Pantex career. So you were still employed. At I was Pantex. still at Pantex. Did you just yeah. ask for a leave? So I you just could took some this? vacation. Yeah, right. saved up vacation and went to Hungary for two and a half weeks and made some incredible connections and it changed everything. And that's the whole point of it is to really change your thought process and how you look at problem solving, how you look at the foundation of life, how you look at it from a business perspective rather than being dependent on grants. How do you design these systems to be profitable? Mm -hmm. And how do you look at diversifying your cash flow? And so I took that concept and ran with it and um, opened up a bed and breakfast while still working at Pantex. Okay. So I did the Airbnb model. It was pretty new at the time. Um, learned a lot. Where about. was the bed and breakfast? It was right by uh, Emerald College. Okay. One of those historic mansions right. over there. And so it was building like microsystems within this house. And um, so got more into the food and beverage, was hosting parties. People would rent out the whole place and I did like the appetizers and the drinks for it. Met a lot of incredible people from all over the place and would so cook breakfast for them on occasion. Um, so it um, the food and beverage just kept coming back kept showing up kept showing up and then I finally decided that I couldn't stay in the engineering world anymore and left to go work for evocation coffee uh, this was before the coffee shop was open okay when they were just roasting right that mm -hmm. and they were working on expanding so they had an opportunity there 
And I was very interested in setting up a farm-to-table um, food program for their new coffee shop. But that ended up not being sustainable because there wasn't enough farm to put on the table at the time and not a concept that they were wanting uh, to run with for their coffee shop, which was totally fine. When and, was this? Around? Um, that would be 2015. Okay. So I was at Pantex for three and a half years, left, spent a little time at Evocation, Went to barista camp, which is a real thing. I believe it. It's very intense. Everybody's very caffeinated, um, but really dove into the coffee world and learned a lot about how many beverages in the world are parallel. And so found out that coffee is like the same as wine. It's insane. The similarities, the agricultural side was definitely um, where I was most interested. So I kind of made note of that. But yeah, just kept racking up my knowledge of food and beverage and all these random little spurts, I guess. And then from there, went up to um, Amarillo Club and trained under Rich Fleetwood, and then which I was a member up there. And so I, you know, sat at his bar and mm-hmm. he served me a cocktail with an egg white in it. Right. And the first time I experienced that, a light bulb went off about like what could be done with cocktails. It wasn't just a Jack and Coke. A rum and coke, something like vodka, soda. Um, That's the, something that a lot of people, if they haven't ever had one, they maybe have heard of that, and it mm-hmm. just seems really weird. Yes. But they don't understand that it right. creates this frothy, creamy mm-hmm. sort of richness to yes. a drink. Yes, and the art that is behind it uh, fascinated me. So um, talked him into hiring me to work under him and learn from him, and he left not too much longer, so I took over as the bar manager, and so it's kind of sink or swim. So I learned a lot really mm-hmm. fast because I had to. And then they had a consultant come in. So I had really good exposure to a professional consultant that had retired. And now all he did was come into these high-end clubs and fix them up. And he taught me about like the business side of things and how to structure the business side. And so I definitely had an engineering take on it, like right. very system. I mean, that's what I did, processes, right? So um, engineered the uh the bar system over there and it worked it was great had a blast um the clientele really took to it really well and then from and that's the best bar in amarello just in terms of the the view the and view is epic yeah sunset there. every night yeah it was perfect and then i had an opportunity with xl energy to come in as a with a consultant company as a program manager so i took that which is back to the engineering side yes yeah i found that um my there has to be a happy medium in there somewhere. So I had to feed my intellectual side and my cravings for that, as well as the creative side for, with the beverages and the food and the passion on that. And so I kept bouncing back and forth trying to find that happy medium, which took a long time. So yeah, Excel, um, I've always been put in positions that are business focused. Um, even as a high school kid working out at Bell Helicopter as an intern, working on the affordability of the B-22s, the Ospreys. Mm -hmm. So paid attention to that pattern, something to do with food and beverage and something to do with business. Kept bouncing back and forth. This time it was um, like the wind turbines and the wind farms and distribution of the power and looking at the business model for that. So, you know, for every mile, it's a million dollars, that kind of thing. So you're looking at these massive projects and can say, okay, that's probably a $110 million energy project right there. So did that for a little bit. Found myself back behind the bar with Rich at Public House. And that was definitely during the prime right there. We had a lot of these super passionate 
mixologists all under the same roof and a bunch of rookies that came to work with us and learn and it was just on fire and we just ran with it and learned and learned and learned and tasted everything and um kept developing the palate kept developing the knowledge uh the network and by then i was starting to kind of map out the food and beverage system from the inside again engineering um looking at the pinch points looking at why chefs and bar managers aren't using local produce, why they're not using local meat, mm -hmm. what is preventing all of this, how does their system set up right now, what's binding them, is it just lack of education, is it lack of relationships. And so I've found that there's just not a system in place really for it yet, and it's dependent on communication. Like farmers and ranchers speak a different language than, say, a chef that is used to all their food coming in on a truck. Right. And it's a completely different world. And they don't understand that, you know, it's harvest season for this particular item and you don't get it year round in the real world. Like if, yes, with distribution, Beniki, Cisco, stuff like that, of course you can now. But back in the day, it was, this is what grew during this time. So this is what you have to work with. But I did find that they were excited by the constraints of that and the creativity that it provokes when you have, like, say, a bunch of beets to work with, right? how many different ways can you use those beets? Um, or prickly pear, like right now, it's the season for prickly pear harvest. How many different ways can you use that fruit that's been around forever? And very underutilized. It's a very medicinal plant um, and beautiful in color. So and we've got a lot of it. We have here. a lot of it. We sure do, yeah. So we, um, the chefs and I started working together in the bar team, and we started playing with a lot of that and then, yeah, so talking to my farmer and my rancher friends, they don't know how to explain that to a lot of the chefs. Like, they don't understand why the chefs don't get it. And a lot of these chefs have always lived in a city. Right. So, like, say when it's time for the rancher to butcher the cows. Well, we'd like to just order all the fillets, the ribeyes, and it needs to be this many every week. Well, that that's two completely different models. So looking at that, found myself... Um, seeing the need to fill the gap as a bridge and as a mouthpiece kind of for both sides because both sides are doing amazing things. They just don't speak the same language. Right. So with that, I started working on the business model for a hydroponic farm, which is where we're at now. Um, and that's still out in Bushland area? It's Yeah, it's right in between. It's just outside city limits, but not quite to Bushland. Okay. And um, ironically, ended up at Hope Road and Farmers Avenue. Right. That's a nice intersection. Wow. Um, and if you take my southern fence line and follow it west, it turns into my parents' northern fence line. Okay. Like cool. not maybe two miles at the most. I can see their trees from my place. It's crazy. But um yeah, so started working on that business model and push and push and push and talk to investors and every time you have that conversation you have to educate them as to what you're talking about right. what is hydroponics um what is aquaponics what's the difference in the two what's the point of this um because another one of the problems i found with the chefs is that if the farmers could supply something they couldn't supply it sustainably so enough volume every week of that item to be able to keep it on the menu where they're the only supplier of like say salad greens Something right. like that it has to be high enough volume. Because the chefs can't change their menu week right. to week. They need some consistency right. too. Yeah, it's great for specials, but when it's when you're trying to supply their actual like permanent menu, you need a lot higher volume and you need something that is not seasonal. 
it needs to be a little more sustainable than that even because a lot of the menus around here stay the same like it's pretty much the same salad year round so if you try to plant greens outside in Amarillo, Texas in January it's probably not going to work real well and then you have to look at say greenhouses well what happens when the hail hits or a tornado I mean tornado is going to wipe out most things but hail hits knocks it out blizzard hits you've seen our weather where it'll be 70 one day and it'll be 20 the next or 71 day and 100 the next so some some kind of design that can handle the variations in our crazy climate here that continue to change um, and are very unpredictable. So the insurance of that um, is a whole nother factor. So as I was designing this, I was like, okay, I need something that's indoors, that's insulated, climate controlled, energy efficient. And so ended up with an LED system, which a lot of people argue it's not natural. But if you're growing outside and you've got bugs eating everything and now you're using pesticides, right, that's, that's not, not exactly natural, natural either. Um, and then there was a lot of there's a lot of dispute about like say tomatoes. If you do hydroponic tomatoes, that they don't have any flavor. The difference in hydroponics and aquaponics. Are you familiar? I am, but for listeners who aren't familiar, sure, talk about those differences. So hydroponics is going to be your plants just with water. You don't have any fish involved. Right. Um, there's no soil involved. It's just plants and water, and you add the nutrients which are soluble to your water tank, and that's how they feed from it. Um, that's their food supply. It's all in the water. You add aquaponics, and now you've got fish involved, whether it's shellfish or swimming fish. Tilapia is probably one of the most popular ones that right. people are familiar with. Um, but they're also finding that you can do shellfish. And I'm not talking about salt water, obviously. Mm-hmm. But you can do – there's some uh, sweet water or unsalty water. The term is sweet water. But where you can do crayfish, you can do shrimp, you can do oysters. There's all kinds of stuff that's coming out now. Um, just studies at different universities that they're figuring out. So if you have never tasted a tomato that's come out of an aquaponic system where you have the waste of the fish feeding the plants, it's insane. I was just up in Seattle at my friend's farm up there, a farmer frog, and they have an aquaponic system with bass, and the tomatoes were like candy. Wow. It was crazy. Yeah. And I've tasted it a couple times, but they've got it down to a science for sure. Um, but yeah, so you can play with all of that. You've got MIT now that's adjusting where you can take, say, um, a tomato that you tasted in Denver, Colorado, and you can analyze the soil and kind of the climate there and look at the nutrients that the tomato's pulling from. And if that's the flavor profile that you love for your menu, you can recreate that by changing what's in the water, like the hmm. water content. Yeah, it's crazy. The science that's coming is insane. And I think they're working on actually getting that MIT uh, food computer system here in town for our AISD guys. Are so. there are there differences in taste based on the the creatures providing the fertilization? I mean, mm-hmm. between bass and tilapia and crayfish? I mean, um, I, I'm going to say there's more of a difference between shellfish and swimming fish okay. rather than a Not bass and a tilapia. Wise. Yeah. So it's in a lot of it, you know, what are you feeding your fish? So if you're feeding your fish worms, versus some other kind of bug versus more of a vegetable type diet it's going to adjust that as well whereas shellfish are more bottom feeders so they clean up a lot of things so their waste is really different so what kinds of products do you produce then i started off with hydroponics because when you're talking to a bank about hydroponics it's the most predictable you can quantify everything really well. It, it's the easiest business model. Whereas when you add aquaponics, now there's more complications. And how do you guess 
how fast these fish are actually going to grow and how much reproduction is going to happen. And there's way more variables. So okay. started with just hydroponics. We're going to add aquaponics later. We'll be doing leafy greens, herbs, microgreens, um, peppers. We're going to be working with a distiller down in Lubbock doing a habanero line that we're super excited about. You can guess the influence on that. Right, right. Yeah. We also have llamas. So we didn't just do the indoors. The indoors is primarily for the plants, um, year-round production. But yeah, llamas, we're going to have egg production, um, quail, ducks, chicken, peacocks, geese, turkeys. We'll see what else. And at the same time, you've been working as a consultant with yes. restaurants. And mm-hmm. so you're building those relationships. Yes even apart from the, the work that you're going mm-hmm, to be doing. As definitely. A- yeah, I just wrapped up my work with Copper Fire in Wolflin. So that's been a lot of fun working with those really high-level chefs right. and talking to them about farm-to-table and educating them about this is a Hubbard squash and it actually grows here and it tastes like this and it's not the same items that they see all the time, which their food distributors are like, you want what? And so it's kind of interesting because the food distributors like Benny Keys, Cisco, stuff like that, they're being educated as well as to what these new things are that can be grown around here, used. The whole um, scenery is changing. I wanted to ask you a little bit. One of the things we've, we've talked before for a magazine article, and one of the things you talked about was how you, you sort of got focused on people and realized that a big part of the lives and connections around people is based on food and drink mm-hmm. and how central that is just to human relationships. Yes. Talk to me about how, how that has sort of driven your career in this direction. Sure. So language barriers, cultural barriers, there's all kinds of things. But when it comes to food, everybody has to eat. And when you're able to share a different cuisine or a fusion between the two, um, it's amazing when you're sitting down in it with a group of people that are strangers and you have a bottle of wine open and a great meal, how all of that kind of dissolves and the community that's built. Um, I've been part of PBS has been doing a series of farm to table, right? which has been the best example of that to live it real time. We just had one with Sam Blackburn out of um, Northwest hospital. He's the head chef over there. And we've, um, I did the cocktail pairings with Jessica Higgins over at Gearsol. Gearsol. It was magical for us to be able to sit in a room of these people that are curious about food, obviously, if they're there in the first place, and to just pour into them the passion that we have and to bring in distillers from Texas and uh, beer brewers from Texas and winemakers from Texas and local farmers and everybody getting to tell them why they do what they do and where they are and what they're doing and having these people soak it up. It was it's a really intense experience because you have two hours where just common folk around Amarillo that are in no way tied to food and beverage industry are getting to experience the passion that we have every single day for food and beverage and watching like literally watching those boundaries dissolve and they're Mm -hmm. sitting with strangers and uh, my parents have been in a lot of them and so I get to hear a lot of the stories about the conversations that happen while you're breaking bread and sipping on these cocktails and talking about the experience of what you're tasting in front of you. So, And you talk yeah. about the passion you know, that, that people have, but this area has not always been a foodie kind of culture. I mean, right. we're, we're always a little bit behind you mm-hmm. know, the, the coasts in yep. terms of the trends the and middle. stuff. Yeah. So tell me how that has grown, how that has expanded just in the past few years. I think a lot of it is um, the younger generation, honestly. The younger generation being at the age where they're the ones out eating at restaurants and they're the ones that have the demand for something new and interesting. They travel a lot, but 
even the older generations are traveling a lot more and they're seeing it, you know, in Dallas and Houston and New York and LA, wherever they're going. And so they get excited and they want to leave Amarillo, escape Amarillo for whatever reason. They leave, they taste these things, they see these things, and now they come home and now there's a demand for it. Right. So now that the demand is, it's existing now, now you've got, it opens the door for people that want to do this. Um, there have been people that have been wanting to change the food scene for a long time, but haven't been able to because the demand's not there. So it's, as the education and the demand rise, um, which now it's happening, happening faster and faster, then there's more and more business owners that are able to open their businesses and provide these really interesting flavors or experiences just because they have people that will pay for it now. Especially in Amarillo, you can't be too advanced with your concepts. Right. It definitely has, you have to pace yourself with the education and the demand at the same time. So, And, and you have chefs who are, are pushing their restaurant clientele mm-hmm. you know, a little bit further, keeping yep. it comfortable, but, but trying to help educate them, yes. introduce them to new tastes. Yes. That's not just for the diners, but also for the chef, yep. him or herself, because they're wanting yes. to, to go further. Mm-hmm. The creative juices, and it's the same behind the bar. The more that you order like the specials, those are usually the items that the chefs get to play more, get outside the box more, and use local produce or whatever it is. Uh, the more you order those items and the more demand there is for that, the more they get to grow. And same thing for your bartenders, like over at Public House and at Copper Fire. The bar scene over there is insane. And people are always bragging about all these different liquors and wines that are over there. And it's like, yes, because the demand is there now. Mm-hmm. People show up there for a different experience. And so the more that people taste these new things and approve of them, then the more new products we get to bring into Amarillo. We have a lot of people that ask that. Well, why doesn't Emerald have this? Why don't they have that? Well, talk to your friends. You need the demand first. Yeah, talk to your friends about ordering those things and tasting things outside the box. And then it'll be provided, I promise. Everybody's just waiting behind the bar in a kitchen to provide that for you. You just have to say yes. It's got to start somewhere, but it starts with the customer. So your your farming operation is really starting up this fall uh, mm-hmm. with installation. Where do you see your business being in a couple of years or five years from now? I mean, how, how do you want to grow? Five years from now. So I've set up mine to provide for our local scene. I, I'm not exporting old business model, you know, produce here, export. That means your money's coming from elsewhere. That's not right. what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to enrich in what we have right here within, the goal is within 50 miles, but I'll settle for 100 miles for okay. now. And so being able to reproduce these farms, so if there's more demand, say, in Lubbock, then we build another farm that's customized to Lubbock. Um, I'm definitely not going to try to take the same model and copy and paste it everywhere. Um, I'm in conversation with some companies in Dallas right now that are a lot higher volume, but a lot narrower demand in terms of like what they want, like how many different species of lettuce or sure. whatever it is. And so being able to... That's the awesome thing about this farm is it's, it's all custom growing. So I have a chef that says, this is what I want to put on my menu. This is how many pounds I expect to use a mm. week. And then I grow it. You're not just growing stuff on spec and then right. trying to sell it. Right. It's already yeah. got. So marketing is, aside from establishing the relationships with the chefs initially, the marketing aspect and the sales aspect is removed. So it's totally based on the relationship and being able to cater to the demands of the mixologists and the chefs around town and people in their own homes that they're wanting something interesting just to cook with at home. Cause a lot of people are 
being a lot more uh, nutrition focused right. in Amarillo. And so there's a huge demand for that as well. Um, so yeah, a few years from now, having multiple farm sites um, in different cities with custom growing with completely different models. Um, I was just up in Seattle at a convention with the Bill Gates Foundation. Mm-hmm. Not related to me. Everybody sadly, asked. I know. Sadly. I know. Asked for a family discount, but they said no. And it was pretty interesting to see that, you know, you have Microsoft, which is a monster and for profit. And then you have the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation where they donate billions of dollars every year. And they're working on massive problems, especially in Africa. Right. And one of the most interesting notes during the convention was that they see the number one way out of poverty is agriculture. Hmm. And that's what they're focused on, which I thought was fascinating. It's something that I've thought about, but not on that scale, not tackling the problem of Africa as a whole and how we're going to fight for so many different problems, but poverty being number one. But yeah, agriculture, that's the number one thing that they're working on. And they've got a whole team of genius engineers working on like tiny problems for how to make the farmer's lives easier that allows them to get out of poverty. Because a lot of them are in agriculture already. I mean, they're Mm -hmm. just subsistence farming, raising their own food and barely making it. Yep. And then you've got things like mold that wipes out. There's a particular strain of mold that wipes out 60% of the grains that's grown every year. So all that hard work. And then 60% is wiped out with this mold that will attack your liver and kill you like pretty quick. So it's like our issues here are communication between farmers and chefs. So first world problems, right? right? Exactly. And then, so it's like to to look at that, shift your perspective. It's like, okay, so we're worried about this and we can't figure out how to talk to each other. When over there, it's life or death. And to have a foundation like that, that's their number one focus is agriculture. It's like, okay, I'm definitely in the right field. If that's what that monstrosity is working on, then I'm definitely in the right field. And there's years of expansion and it's never going to get boring because there's exactly. always something new to develop. Just to kind of close, give me an idea of, of the scope of what you have built uh, on your own, own farm. I mean, how many square feet do you have sure. like in a greenhouse and, and that sort of thing? So um, 3,200 square feet. It's a Quonset hut. It looks just like a typical barn okay. in West Texas, which is the point. I have about 1,700 square feet of grow space. So that it's all um, like spray foam insulated, very efficient. Um, underneath that, I have an aging cellar for wine. All right. And I think we're going to start playing with aging cheeses using local dairy milk, goat, and cow. Making it yourself? Mm-hmm. And then I put a commercial kitchen in. And it's not your high-volume commercial kitchen that you would think of with the fryers and all of that. But it's something where we can take, if we have a ton of basil that's not being consumed, we can turn it into pesto or prickly pear season. And we need to can a whole bunch of prickly pears or turn it into syrup. Then we have a commercial kitchen. But it's also something where other local farmers can take their products and come and do their canning there or host a farm-to-table dinner or have just a good time and a get together amongst chefs that's neutral ground or having a place for farmers and chefs to mingle and to start breaking down that dialogue a little bit and just to get to know each other as people. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so a common ground for a lot of different uses. And then there's a small event space slash education space. So it can be used as a classroom 
It could be used for like a small party or a small dinner, something like that. The farm sits on about 43 acres. So we're working on fencing that in and I've got three fat pregnant happy llamas that are waiting to move over and then all the birds that need to move over. And then we left a lot of space where we'll be um, around the perimeter of the property. We'll be planting like fruit trees and nut trees and uh, juniper, anything with like juniper berries or other things that are like local greenery that we can use. And then we'll be doing a ton with like herbs that can survive outside, rosemary, lavender, sage. Um, We'll be doing bees for honey production and then left more space for growth on that. So whatever direction it goes, I just set it up to where we can grow however it needs to. So here's the foundation and then wherever the demand takes us, that's where we go. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this episode is sponsored by Six Car Pub and Brewery. Their sponsorship comes courtesy of my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash And on that page, through that payment platform, individual listeners like you can support the show on a monthly basis. You'll get bonus content, and, and that includes bonus podcast episodes that not everybody gets to hear. But most of all, you get to contribute to the continued existence of this show. You get to help me keep making Hey Amarillo. Now, one of the support tiers there is for $100 a month. I, I call it the sponsorship tier. And it gets you a monthly ad like you heard earlier about Six Car. It's an economical and ongoing way for businesses to stay in front of my listeners and to, in the process, support a local creative product. So to learn more, go to patreon.com slash heyamarillo. That's Patreon with an E. Okay, I'm back with Savannah Gates, uh, who's an engineer turned farmer and uh, restaurant and bar consultant. Savannah, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. Your job as my guest is to answer those in whatever degree of detail you want to. Okay. So I, I've got one specifically for you uh, due to your career and, and your interests. As a professional mixologist, what's your favorite drink? Ironically, I like tequila or mezcal, like a nice glass of tequila or mezcal neat. Okay. Super simple. When you're tasting a bunch of different complex things, sometimes you just want the simplicity of a really good product. If I'm eating, I love a nice red wine, old world style, preferably. I'm definitely a fan of Spain. All right. And then for desserts, um, Takaya Shu is a Hungarian dessert wine that is amazing. What is that compared to that people uh, might have tasted? Um, or is it not something you can easily compare? It's it's a white dessert wine. You want to drink it about room temperature, and it it really lets it open up. Some people think I'm crazy, but to me, the finish on it is like if you've been at the gun range or Fourth of July, that gunpowder mm-hmm. taste that's in the air. That's how it finishes to me. I don't know why, but it does. Okay. Some people are like, "Yeah, okay, I can see that." Some people are like, "Yeah, no." I would have to taste. Yeah, it first you're gonna to have see. to. I'll bring it next time. Okay. Uh, I know you've worked with a number of different restaurants, so you you may hesitate with what you answer here, but what's your all-time favorite Amarillo restaurant? Punjabi Affair. Really? Yes. It's comfort food, a rough day. That's all I want. And sometimes it's like a Sunday, mm-hmm. and they're closed, and yeah. it's very depressing. But yeah, Punjabi Affair is amazing Indian food at uh, Western and 6th Street. What do you get there? Do you have a favorite dish? Um, I usually go with whatever they're recommending for the special, but I definitely love their lamb curry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. What does this area have too much of? Um, I think old school 
problem solving. We keep talking about our problems and we keep running into walls with the same kind of solution and thinking over and over and over, regardless of what business it is. Do you have an example in mind or uh, a category of what that has looked like? Um, Because of our theme of today in restaurants and bars, People complain about wanting, oh, I want something different. I want something different. I'm going to open up my own restaurant because I want something different. But then they all open and they're all pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. They all stick to the same safe style, even if it's a little different here or there. Every, I don't know. It seems like everybody's playing it safe. And so we just have a ton of restaurants opening up every week and bars opening up, or sorry, every month. And nobody seems to really push the limits. And really put themselves out there and try something new. And so we end up with the same thing again and again and again. What does this area not have enough of? It's similar to the last one outside of the box thinking. Um, For problem solving, for business models. Yeah, we just keep... Yeah, it's kind of tied to that last question, I guess. Is is it because we are sort of independent-minded and we don't like to you know, feel reliant on outside sources or this is how it worked in, you know, San Francisco or uh, New York City. We, we want to figure it out ourselves. But because of that, we keep turning back to the same ideas over and over. Do you think it's that the isolation that maybe makes us this way? I think it's uh, we're content. Okay. Yeah, I think we're content. And um, I, like a super random example, right? During this construction, lots of wood scraps that come out of construction, right? And they're all being taken to the trash. And when I was going to definitely, since I'm paying for all of them, I was going to use the wood scraps to build out my chicken coop. Right. Because you can turn that into something else like very easily. And so just looking, it's amazing when you tell somebody that they look at you like you're crazy and it's like, but why would you want this trash? Yeah. And so I think um, being, I don't think we're resourceful enough with what we have, whether it's um, watering our sod in the middle of a Mm semi-desert climate in the middle of July or um, scraps like that or food waste. How much food do we throw away when we could be using it to feed a hog farm or chickens or composting or anything like that? We just stick to the same old pattern for convenience and because we're content with it. When was the last time you visited the Big Texan? I think it was when I was working for Evocation. I went out there to talk to them about doing a custom roast for them. And they were just getting ready for their new plans for their new uh, facility. And we looked at all of that, but it wasn't to eat. All right. What's your favorite season in the Texas Panhandle? I love the spring. It's, um, I hate the winter. It's so depressing. And then as soon as everything starts budding, aside from the wind that Mm -hmm. comes with it, I absolutely love the spring and the hope that it brings. Does that come from your farming background, your agricultural? Yeah. All right, this is a question that I ask pretty often. I, I want to see if you'll identify yourself with a certain team. Are you a pack-a-sack or a toot-and-totem person? I didn't know there were teams, but... Um, <laughs> I don't think there are teams. <laughs> I'm just going to pretend there are. Yeah, I don't ever go inside of them. I just fill neither up my one, tank. Right? Yeah, I just fill up my tank and go, so okay. neither. All right. Sorry. That No, that's acceptable. I, you, you don't even have to play the game if you don't <laughs> okay. want to be on one of those teams. Uh, you, you've, you've traveled pretty often. Uh, you talk to a lot of people outside this area. How do you describe Amarillo to people who don't live here or don't know this place? Um, I talk about the charm, the charm of the people. Everybody's very friendly. It's like walking into a history book. 
is what I tell them. The wild, wild west. There's in a good still, way or a bad in way? In a good way. Okay. Yeah, the charm of that. Uh, I mean, there's. I guess there's. it's both because of how behind we are, like you said. We're kind of caught in the middle of the country, and you, it starts on the coast and moves its way in. So we're like 10 years behind in a lot of things. But no, I talk about um, just the charm of how you still wave at people on the road and sometimes you still see horses at Dairy Queen and we've got Paladero Canyon and the drawl, mm-hmm. I guess, that um, some people over in Europe really enamor- are enamored by that um, when they hear your accent. But um, And then I talk about how it's such a wonderful place for business because we're growing so fast now. Um and there's not much diversity yet. And so if you can supply that demand and just pick a niche, then it's a great place for business. Sure. The relationships are very accessible. It doesn't take a whole lot to really build strong relationships here versus getting lost in the big city. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that concludes my eight straight questions. Uh, Savannah, I like to end the show just by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's something related to this area that you would want listeners to know about or to experience supporting local businesses locally owned businesses it's so easy to just get on your phone and order something off of amazon Mm -hmm. convenience factor you don't have to leave your house but there are so many businesses here in town with great people that if you can find what you need locally please do that because it's only helping your whole community and you get the relationships out of the deal so Every time you support local businesses, you're supporting the growth of our city and the progress. So, Savannah Gates, thank you for being on the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thank I appreciate you so much. It. Thank you. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Savannah Gates for the interview. You can learn more about her work at Reinventing the Wheel on Instagram. That's probably the best spot right now. And that's Wheel, W-E-A-L. So search for that. Give her a follow. Thank you to Six Car for sponsoring the show, and thanks to my executive producers. These include Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, Jennifer Callahan, Ryan Pennington, Katie Linger, and Corey Burns. You can find out more about this podcast at heyamarillo.com. Dig through the archives there. Follow us on Twitter. Look us up on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram at Podcast. If you appreciate the show... I'd love for you to support it by becoming part of my Patreon community at patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Regardless of what you do, though, thank you for listening. I really do appreciate it. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.